to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. My name is Christopher Carter and I'm here with... David Robertson. And uh, what's this week's interview, Chris? This interview is uh, Martin Lepage, um, who is our archive manager, and it's the first interview that he has done for us. You'll be hearing a few from him, uh, speaking with Meredith McGuire on lived religion. And I, I know that we all have a lot to say about this afterwards, should say this is part one of the interview, so it's a, an excellent long interview for you. So you're going to get the second part on Wednesday. But for now, take it away, Martin. I'm here today at the ISSR uh, conference in uh, Louvain-la-Neuve, Belgium. I'm with Dr. Meredith McGuire, who is a professor of sociology and anthropology at a Trinity University, San Antonio, Texas. Um, she also was uh, the president of both the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion and the Association for the Sociology of, of Religion. Dr. McGuire is also a specialist in environmental sociology and in sociology of health and illness. Uh, her most recent work, uh, which we're going to talk about uh, mostly today, uh, is entitled Lived Religion, F Faith and Practice in Everyday Life, which, uh, which was pu published at Oxford in 2008. Um, other works of uh, Dr. McGuire include uh, her, her work called Ritual Healing in Suburban Amer Amer America in uh, 1988 that was funded by the, the National Institute of Health Project. Is that right? Uh, National Institute of Health. Uh, the project itself was a separate name, but... Uh... Yeah. Excellent. Perfect. Um, like I s said uh, today, well, first of all, uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being with me to the, to, to, to the, today. I could not wait to finally speak with you. Uh, today we're gonna talk. Uh, we're gonna talk mostly about your uh, last book, Lived Religion, and uh, maybe get into uh, uh, get a little bit more into. Uh, your chapter on gendered spiritualities, mm -hmm. uh, but of course we want to know what is lived religion. This is my first big question. <laughs> um, the whole notion of lived religion is uh, to distinguish the parts of the individual's religion that are daily practices that the person may engage in in everyday life settings. Sometimes you can't even tell that somebody's engaging in those practices or for those reasons. But the idea is that it is um, various things that they do to express or to um, achieve a, a deeper level of religious experience in their own lives um, that might or might not be, does not necessarily have to be at all linked with any recognized official religion or church or what have you. Um, so we find that people combine a lot of things in their, in their personal lived religion and sometimes they borrow elements from 
uh, existing things. Sometimes they combine them in interesting ways. Sometimes they create new ways of expressing their personal religion. Um, sometimes it's linked with reading texts from some religion or another. But the idea is that they then choose which elements to emphasize in their own life. And they might choose different elements in different parts of their lives. Uh, they might choose certain elements when they are, say, child-rearing and certain other elements when they get older and have more peace and quiet in their lives. Um, so the idea is then how is it that people practice their religion, put their faith into actual actions in everyday life and um, what kinds of ways do they make it meaningful? Excellent. Uh, I've heard a lot, uh, there's been some sort of a discourse, uh, I've heard the term lived religion and religion as lived, mm -hmm. is that any different? Yes and no. I think that um, I use both of those terms and sometimes I emphasize one or another. I think the advantage of the term lived religion is that it really does emphasize um, the subjective experience that the individual has when they are practicing their religion. And so um, it might have to do with, you know, uh, attunement of the body or how they hold their, uh, the, the attention to things spiritual or what have you. So the lived experience then evokes a lot of the concepts that we use for analyzing things from a phenomenological approach, and I really like that. On the other hand, referring to religion as lived is in conjunction with the uh, opposition of religion as preached. So you might have somebody who is, uh, say, a Catholic, uh, a practicing Catholic, somebody who considers themselves faithful and so forth, but their religion as lived, while still being Catholic, might not be what the Catholic Church is preaching is the, is the central part of what it means to be a Catholic. And so that distinction then uh, shows the, I, I think it's good for both purposes. One is to get more into the experiential part and the subjective part, but the other is to say, well, even objectively speaking, uh, we can talk about the way the person lives their religion, what elements do they choose in their own life to emphasize as opposed to what's being preached and they might they might consider themselves to be better the Catholics than the priest just to use that as a particular example um, so then the, the issue is that a lot of people in working out their own individual life and, and religious practice and so forth um, very frequently do try to find ways of negotiating how much do I really want to stick to the official line and so forth. Excellent. The title of your book is Lived Religion, Faith and Practice. Uh -huh. Do you think that uh, in your book or in your own research, has there been uh, more of an emphasis on faith or on 
practice? Or do you consider them to be equally observable in the same uh -huh. manner? I, um, uh, first of all, let me just mention, when I say faith, I'm talking about more than just beliefs. And I think that if it were belief versus practice, I would have no doubt to say, forget about the belief. You know, take a look at the practice because when you, you've got somebody who believes something and they actually are putting it into practice in their lives, then the belief and the practice are one. But if something is just a belief at the cognitive level and it doesn't get put into practice, either subjectively or in terms of how the person behaves in everyday life, then is it really their faith? You know, is it just simply a bunch of creedal statements that they memorized at some stage in the game? So I, I wouldn't distinguish them in terms of lived religion because they're both going on simultaneously. But I do think that by mentioning both of those, that it, it is not just doing the practices, but not have any particular faith in something about that religious way of life that makes it worth putting into practice. Um, so I, I don't see them as that far apart. It's just that I think that we do tend to talk about the practices as the things people are doing and the faith part as the things that they're thinking while they're doing it or what have you. But as you could tell from my talk the other day, you can't really separate the cognitive part of it from the embodied part of it. Embodiment. I love that expression and we're going to come back to that. <laughs> um, You, you a, a lot of what you've said so far, and it's uh, very much uh, present in, in in your book. Um, it raises the question of authenticity, mm -hmm. of uh, mostly of uh, what is true religion and what is mm -hmm. not, and who has religious power and authority mm -hmm. uh, in that sense uh, you talked about the subjective experience mm -hmm. um, what about the intersubjective what about group practices and the building of a community does it stem from this subjectivity does it come from an outside and then it's transformed Uh, let's separate some of these concepts, okay? Because early on you talked about authenticity and authority. And I have a hunch that uh, those aren't terribly important for much of the lived religion. Um, I think certain beliefs and practices gain authority when a whole group is practicing something that they find meaningful compared to when somebody's just saying this is what you ought to believe. But I don't really think that those are big motivating factors for a lot of people. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how you're using the word authenticity, so I don't want to end up going into something which I'm not sure that we're using it the same way. But I think that, um, I don't think this is where intersubjective experience comes in. 
I think intersubjective experience is pretty rare, but it's possible. Uh, and I think that it happens after people have gotten attuned to each other, so it doesn't happen first. It happens after a group has been practicing together for a while, has um, some sort of a sense of what to expect and so on. But I'm not sure what your question is when it comes to um, like how that ties in with authority or power. You used the word power earlier yes. on. And I'm not sure what the issue is there. So maybe you could tell me a little yes. bit more why you asked it that way or asked the question that way. What I was thinking about mostly is uh, lived religion, as I got from reading y y your book, was it's a, a way of empowerment. There is some kind of a, a distanciation from authority mm. and the power is uh, is given back or, or is taken back into the hands of the individuals and how does that uh, how does that work when because uh, we never were not alone in the world mm -hmm. never mm -hmm. so um, how does this subjectivity this experience of uh, religiosities and faith and practices uh, deal with the encounter of an, of an, an another. Mm -hmm. um, this is why I use authenticity because to some your someone's religiosity is true uh, to them, but mm -hmm. to another one, it's it won't be, or to academics, it won't be. Um, and of course, this gets a lot more. Uh, it gets bigger and issues arise from that when you uh, when these subjectivity these subjectivities uh, meet mm -hmm. this is where I want to go a bit with the intersubjectivity and um, is there some kind of an issue when you think about lived religion uh, when people who create and negotiate their faith and practice when they meet with any kind of uh, group practices or church mm -hmm. or just in everyday life we meet other people who are spiritual or religious in different manners mm -hmm. but still can agree on stuff or, or not um, is it still true religion when we can't really uh, agree on certain fundamental aspects of our spirituality or rel religious traditions? Uh, again, we're, we're stuck on a definition there. It's, uh, a definition. it's a matter of definition. I would say that probably, well, let me just take an example of a, yes. of a church I know of. Um, my husband actually has written up a brief ethnography of the group as part of some research project years ago. Uh, he wasn't in charge of the research project. But it was an Episcopalian parish that was named by the bishop um, of that area um, as one of the most vital 
lively, vibrant uh, churches in his entire um, diocese. And so um, this sociologist wanted to do studies of several of these churches in different parts of the country and uh, commissioned a local sociologist to attend the church a lot, interview key people, talk to people who were uh, more traditional or more avant-garde in terms of, of their understanding of Episcopalian uh, faith and practice, if you will. And um, it was really fascinating that in the very same parish you had people practicing maybe two, I mean, it was basically the parish was offering lots of different ways of being Episcopalian in that same church. And so you could come to the nine o'clock um, they didn't call it Sunday school, but sort of like a Sunday school period while the children were having their Sunday school classes, these adults had these groups that they, interest groups, if you will. Mm -hmm. And some of them were reading um, some famous mystic from the 16th century, and somebody else was reading, um, they were discussing a book about um, uh, the Catholic Worker Movement, and another group was reading poetry um, from various eras, all of which linked religion or spirituality and uh, environmental issues. Um, they had everything from really high Anglican-style services all the way to uh, they had um, a... Uh, uh, um, Taize service, liturgical service. They had a, um, oh, I forget all the different things they had. But, but basically, everything from, I won't say Zen Buddhism, but a mixture of Buddhist-type meditation and Episcopalian-type meditation, the whole range, just a complete range of different things. And people would pick and choose differently, like, oh, I, I tried the one last semester, I mean, last uh, month on thus and such, and I got so much out of it, but I'm, now I'm going to try something else, okay? And, and it was all okay. Um, I think they would have been, I think that they would have said that's out of line, not in terms of what somebody was believing, but if that person was then trying to bully others into accepting a very narrow vision of what it means to be one of us. So as long as they were nice to each other in these groups, people were accepted as being part of our parish. And they received communion together, and they you know, participated in all kinds of social activities. They ran a community garden, and they fed the old people in the neighborhood some of the fruit and vegetables from their garden. But at the same time, in terms of dogma, you'd have to look really hard to find something that was so far out of line that it would have been grounds for somebody saying, you don't belong here. Uh, so I think if that's going on in recognized churches, how much more so would it be in um, a gathering of people who made time for spending time with each other 
to meditate together or to do spiritual dancing together or something like that. They might talk about ideas, but the practices might be just enough to hold them together. Um, or they might feel that when they were doing certain activities together, they were learning enough about what each other's values and, and so forth were that they that was all they needed. That was enough to bind them together in a sense of community. Um, some of the groups actually even deliberately said, we don't want to have anybody who is the, the, the leader in charge of us. You know, they might um, choose a clerk every so often and change who, who had that role, or they might recognize certain gifts in the group about who would be especially good to talk to if you felt like your marriage was falling apart and you needed some, the equivalent of what some churches would call pastoral counseling, but these are not organized as churches. Most of these groups are just sort of like people who care about the practices and they get together and do things. So I think that that the whole notion about the role of authority starts breaking down when you start having a situation where people don't really care if everybody is exactly orthodox according to certain beliefs. But at the same time, if in their practices of how they relate to each other, they're behaving in a way that is hurtful or something like that, then somebody might step in and say, you know, if that's really what you want, you ought to go find a different group because in our group we don't like people doing that to each other, you know. Uh, and it's very light-handed. I, I mean, I, I haven't seen too many of these groups, you know, get split right down the middle over something like this. Occasionally, there might be a group who want to try something more exotic, and some others who, you know, prefer something a little bit more traditional or something. That might divide it, but it wouldn't even divide it enough to say, you know, I'm angry at you for changing what you were doing or anything like that. It would just be oh, well, this doesn't suit me anymore. But then, actually, when you think about it, most of the people I described in that book are people who have picked up some things, tried them on for a while, put them down. Some of them keep going, doing several different practices simultaneously, maybe even being part of several groups. Like that woman that I described, I think it was in a chapter on gender issues specifically. She, you know... She really had her identity linked with three very different kinds of groups, and she needed them all, but for different things. And uh, and they each gave her the freedom to be the kind of person she wanted to be. Yes. <laughs> so this you talk about, about uh, in your book about creativity, hybridity, mm -hmm. inventivity, maybe mm -hmm. even. Uh, in regards, as I felt uh, uh, in, 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 in regards to uh, normativity, uh, and this is why I brought up author, author, mm -hmm. author, authority, um, I like to go maybe a little bit deeper into uh -huh. the, the gender issues, uh -huh. because uh, the gender is very much linked uh, with issues of power and mm -hmm. normativity. Right. Um, Can you explain, well, you went a little bit into that a second ago. Um, when you write about gender, are you specific?
specifically writing about women because most of the time gender studies look at how women and people who identify as LGBT mm -hmm. um, and queer um, uh, how they uh, I lost my train of but thought there. You but were how on the norm stuff yes. and then the norms are there in a way it's a it's a fact that you know no matter how much one wishes it weren't the case the norms are there in any society as to which things are okay relative to uh, a particular gender role that you've got um, and on the other hand I'd say our society is somewhere uh, on the slightly more rigid side, but not necessarily the most rigid type of gender narrowness. And yet there's enormous amounts of potential for a whole range of creativity, uh, unfortunately not in the public sphere as much as in the private sphere, but, but still there's a lot of creativity that goes on already, has been going on for centuries. And that's part of the reason why I thought it was especially interesting as I began to look into some of the historical religious practices to find out how much gender and people's experiences with gender roles were linked with medieval um, spiritualities, which were very different from the norms of medieval Christian preaching, at least. And yet, um, pretty darn amazing stuff. I mean, the whole idea, for example, of a woman talking about being loving God in a mutual, interpenetrating way is pretty darn interesting when you stop to think about the kinds of rigid expectations about women's roles and so forth. And and yet, because these women had been married before they became involved in the Beguinages, that meant that they probably had had some experiences in which their sex role was not limited to just being on the receiving end of a man's attention. Somehow or another, the ability to make that sort of a jump to being uh, imagining a less hierarchical relationship with God is a pretty darn impressive thing. And um, and I think that it definitely led to some practices that had never been imagined before. They were not likely to have been imagined in a, a convent because all of those people would have been from a very early age segregated and treated as being totally innocent of certain things whether they were or not. I mean, you know, that's, that's how they were treated, how they were expected to imagine things. So I think, that, I think that once we become aware of the fact that people can, in fact, have spiritualities that bend all kinds of norms, um, that allow people to imagine relationships with God, relationships with each other, that aren't in rigid sex stereotyped, gender stereotyped types of ways of behaving toward another person or, or toward God, then that opens up all kinds of other possibilities, like possibilities 
that um, that women might become leaders even in a hierarchical society, or possibility that families might consist of many people loving each other uh, rather than just pairing things off narrowly. All kinds of just like, well, what if? And I'm not saying that any one of those is necessarily a right or a wrong solution, uh, but I think that one of the neat things is to realize that even in a society that was so very, very rigid in what one could hope to do for a job, what one could imagine might be uh, your gift in the future and stuff like that, all of that was just so rigidly narrow, and yet people's spirituality shows enormous creativity. Even in some cases, for example, there were some apprentices who were working in the print houses in the in the 15th, would that be 16th or 15th century? These were apprentices. They were from families where nobody had learned to read. And they, because they were working in this print house, began to learn how to read. And they were eager to learn to read. Next thing you know, they're reading some of the books that they're printing, and they start thinking about ideas, and they start writing notes about their ideas about, do I agree with this? Do I not agree with this? And, and I mean, just imagine what a huge shift that must have been in those people's lives to suddenly realize, I can think about these things that these famous people over at that university are, are writing about, and I can form my own opinions about them. And I can look at my own life and say, does this really fit or does this not really fit? You know? And so I think that that's the same kind of thing that's going on now very frequently, even in popular religion, where people may not have a very sophisticated set of ideas, but the fact that something stimulates it, and suddenly they start realizing, oh, this is sort of similar to that. I wonder if, uh, you know, and so it's, there's a lot of possibilities out there. Yes. And, but the norms are things people learn, right? So that it's hard for them to break it, especially if in breaking some norm that was somebody who was really important to them, like mama or something like that, um, it doesn't come easily. At the same time, not only the child, but also the parents can change too. And that's what's really fascinating about some of the people that I interviewed. Some of them were people who had been very rigid when they were younger. And then something happened and yeah. the world changed. Well, thanks for that, Martin and, uh, and Meredith, indeed. And don't forget to come back for the second part on Wednesday if you enjoyed that. Also, don't forget about the British Association for the Study of Religions, who are our awesome sponsor, uh, without whom your ears would not have heard part one of Martin's interview with Meredith McGuire. Um, so Martin's you know, been, been picking up on some of these, these issues already in the interview, but you know, lived religion, it, it ties in with all sorts of sort of currently popular notions, everyday religion vernacular religion, folk religion, popular religion. Uh, David and I have actually mentioned these things a little bit in our uh, introduction to forth the forthcoming super volume, After World Religions. Um, 
Yeah, what is this thing that is living yeah. in there that, that, that we find in everyday life and in the vernacular? Yeah. I mean, it, it comes from an understandable notion that previous models of religion had been very much text-based and based on the accounts of elites and whatnot. And, but all too often I find approaches which then go, oh, we need to look at the real religion, what people do on the ground, what religion actually is, that they fall into doing exactly that. They reify the sort of quotidian um, as if it is in some way more authentic than than text-based things and that, that you're getting some sort of essence when you look at what the ordinary folk do. Um, well, there's a sort of essentialism or perennialism even running mm. through it that that uh, you know the problem with studying religion is because we've been focused so much on these elite textual institutionalized uh, forms of religion that the essential thing religion itself that flourishes in all sorts of contexts has been ignored mm. and we can get back to that real religious experience um by looking at um, the material lived people or material the phenomenological reality of the individual believer's experience well this is an argument Russell McCutcheon's made that it, you know the material religion or lived religion is essentially phenomenology by stealth that um, okay you're not focusing on traditions you know these big world traditions or elite accounts yet you're still focused on this essential force which unfolds itself throughout history and in all different kinds of contexts mm. so whilst obviously um martin is not uh, reifying that and indeed um neither is meredith we just you know we're very concerned that that you see it in in sort of first year um, undergraduate tutorials you know students will come in with a preconceived notion of what religion is and then they'll probably leave the class thinking that, well, you know, every individual has their own experience and that theorizing is, you know, useless. Right. And um, and that it's that thing that we want to combat. You know, we don't... Focusing on what people do in their ordinary life is a good thing, but shouldn't be taken as... Well, indeed. I mean, I think there's very strong um, aspects to this kind of methodology. I mean, the, the material religion, for instance, when it was... Um, first introduced had this quite noble aim I think of getting us away from first of all elite accounts and these mm -hmm. kind of things textual based but also to avoid using theological language yeah. such as belief and you know these kind of things the problem is that it's being used by people with different agendas mm -hmm. and in some agendas when you have this essentialist kind of perennial um, set of assumptions underlying it then you get this very sort of protestant uh, version of it in which we start we stop talking about how objects um, embody the behavior of human beings and we start talking about how these objects embody the sacred mm -hmm. or embody religion or express religion or express the divine and in which case we're simply back to um, you know straightforward theological explorations of the sacred we might as well be talking about Eliada mm. um, but you know so that that's the problem just so with that commentary in mind, um, you should come back on Wednesday for part two and um, with our sort of interruption of the interview. Um, 
But obviously, make your own mind up um, after hearing the rest of Martin's and Meredith's excellent interview. Um, we've wittered on for a while there, so I'll just flag up that next week um, it's an interview from me uh, speaking with Jenny Butler on um, 21st century paganism on the island of Ireland. Um, we should also flag up, of course, Facebook, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, Amazon links. If you could use those, please. iTunes, uh, do leave us a rating if uh, if you're there. Um, and I think all that is left to be said is thanks for listening.